welcome everybody to a fascinating discussion with two eminent scientists, Sir Roger Penrose, winner of the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physics, and Dr. Stuart Hameroff, who, unlike me, is a real doctor. Uh, like me, he puts people to sleep. Uh, I do so in my lectures. He does so under uh, anesthesiology. But uh, but we both share a fascination, both with the work of Sir Roger and of the deepest questions known to the human mind, including the human mind itself. So I hope you will enjoy this episode. This episode picks up where we left off yesterday. We are talking about the Emperor's New Mind. We got into a state collapse. We were just about to talk about Everettian uh, many worlds theory. We get into that in this episode. So the first episode, if you haven't listened to that, go back to part one, wish Sir Roger a happy birthday and talked about the updates that he would make to Emperor's New Mind, if he could. The book that inspired me as a 15-year-old to someday write a book uh, for popular scientists, which I did and which Roger endorsed amazingly. Uh, so this episode, you're going to hear about things like alien intelligence, the simulation hypothesis, and we're even going to get into the existential questions I love to ask my guests, including, is there an afterlife? Uh, how did life emerge on Earth? Uh, and uh, the answers to my patented Fantastic Four questions about uh, things they've changed their mind on, what's the most magical form of technology, and how do they go into the impossible, the name of this podcast. So sit back, relax, enjoy. Don't forget to leave a rating and tune in tomorrow uh, for some of you listening to this live or, or go up to the channel and, and find my conversation with Dr. Sabina Hassenfelder. And you can get that on YouTube live if you're listening to this uh, before Tuesday, the 8th of August. Uh, you will be able to chat live with her on my YouTube channel. And that's Dr. Brian Keating. She'll be in the live chat for some time. So for now, enjoy this episode as we go into the impossible with Stuart Hameroff, Roger Penrose, and yours truly, Dr. Brian Keating. Enjoy. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Guys, uh, so we should be back, and hopefully there'll be some guests remaining on the channel listening in to part two of this special interrupted uh, interview with uh, Sir Roger Penrose and Dr. Stuart Hameroff. And I uh, don't see it live. There it is. Now we're live. There's one person watching. Good. That's at least <laughs> more than uh, could be expected. So let me, um, let me continue. So where were we? We were discussing the... But, uh, yeah, we were having fun. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I was saying. Uh, uh, yeah, so we were talking about, um, uh, yes, the role of, of, of the collapse of the wave function. And I mentioned I would like to know if, let's say that there is no, the Copenhagen interpretation um, is not correct, uh, and there is sort of an Everettian world, many worlds phenomenon, could such a thing be a, could microtubules play a role in it? In other words, do you need a collapse? If you don't have Orc OR, do you, can you have a theory of quantum mechanics that doesn't feature state reduction in the same way as it does in the standard Copenhagen interpretation? Do you get uh, consciousness or does consciousness not arise in some sense? Well, the view is that, that Orc OR by definition is Orc, which means orchestrated and OR, well, it spells OR, but it means objective reduction. So that theory simply doesn't occur. I mean, it's just, it needs the collapse of the wave function. And I've never mm. understood how you can have many worlds. I mean, it doesn't really explain conscious experience or anything like that. Because if all the alternatives, the quantum alternatives coexist, why are we only aware of one of them? Right. 
and the theory doesn't have anything to say about that at all. It just doesn't make, to me, to my, I, I hate to say this because there's so many philosophers in Oxford who are strong supporters of many worlds, so I should, I should shut up. <laughs> my view is very different from that. I, you, you've got to have things where, where, where there's just one world that survives and the other ones die off in a sense. So the alternatives, yes, for Orko are, you have to have that. So um, is it more uh, is it more an objection to uh, to the many worlds theory in that it doesn't seem to accommodate consciousness, or is it is it you know sort of more evidentiary for you know for the standard or Copenhagen type uh, wave collapse uh, etc. In other words, if God tells you there are many worlds, uh, what how would you react? I mean, could, would you say no? That can't be because there's no consciousness in such a state. Well, it doesn't live comfortably with consciousness because it doesn't explain why conscious experience only experiences one of these worlds. And even worse than that, and this was the thing I always objected to, it's all right, you could imagine that for some reason each person experiences one world, but why do we, all of us seem, I mean, well, all my friends come drifting off into other worlds, and why do they seem to be companions with consciousness just like myself? And seem to be inhabiting the same world that I have, so it's not. It doesn't make any sense to me. So why philosophers take it so seriously, I find is very strange. But uh, I think you see, they're too wedded to the the equations that we know. You see, the the equation, the Schrödinger equation. Schrödinger was absolutely clear in pointing this out. His own equation does not explain the world we see. The world we see has to have some another ingredient which is in some sense or other, the wave function collapses. So you get one alternative and not all these possible alternatives coexisting. I mean, they do if they're small enough. So that's the puzzle. You have to have a theory in which, okay, yeah, when you're talking about small things and you're talking about you know particles or atoms or, or um, molecules, as long as they're small enough, they seem to follow the Schrodinger equation. So you need to have a theory which tells you when they get big enough, they don't follow the Schrodinger equation. And the idea is here that there's a, a scheme which tells you how long these superpositions can exist. And if they're very tiny, it's more or less longer than the age of the universe. But if they're sizable, it might be microseconds. So you've got to sort of balance this right so that it comes about so that these collapses happen with structures that are about the right size. And that's that's the question. To make the theory work, you've got to make sure that these numbers come out right. Mm -hmm. And the numbers are, are, are how long the collapse takes come from a very pretty clear equation. It was due to Lias Yoshi, actually. He had the idea before I did, but he didn't have the motivation that I did. And his version is different from mine. But it, you, it, it's certainly the same idea. You, it, it, this depends on gravity. So you have to have a theory which involves the ideas of Einstein's general theory of relativity, which is the theory of gravity and curved space-time and all that. And you try to fit that together with quantum mechanics. And many people regard it as the, one of the profound problems of physics is to what they call quantum quantized gravity. So they think of imposing the rules of quantum mechanics on gravitational theory. But to me, that's going the wrong way because it doesn't 
deal with the problems that are inherent in quantum mechanics, namely this problem of superposition of states not persisting. And we, mm. we don't see that in the world we observe. So you need a theory which is put right. And the claim is that Einstein's general theory of relativity, when appropriately combined with quantum mechanics, will do that for you, which is the other way. It's gravitizing quantum mechanics rather than quantizing gravity. So is it true that you wouldn't have consciousness in Minkowski space? I mean, would it be impossible without gravitational force? I mean, obviously, you'd have matter, you'd have a brain, you'd have some gravitating. Uh, but is it is it impossible then to have consciousness in a in a region that's either perfectly flat, has no matter, or is otherwise free from perturbations? Well, yeah, that would be the claim, yes. Certainly the Orkoa theory claims you've got to involve gravity. So if you had things that didn't involve gravity, I mean, space-time is flat, it's got to involve Einstein's theory, not just gravity in the Newtonian sense. Um, and you've got to have that. So I would agree, yes. Mm -hmm. if, you, if your systems were too small or something to, to affect the gravitational field significantly, they would not be conscious. And when you guys started this conversation 30 years ago, did you ever think there'd be experimental tests both ongoing that seemed to support and some that seemed to contradict some of your results, Stuart, did you think that it, besides what you do, where you put people to sleep, which I, I point out, I do that every time I give a lecture, you know, to my students, I, I, I do the same as you, Stuart. So don't feel too, you know, I'm not a real doctor. Okay. But, um, but did you ever think outside of the brain, you know, the medical world that we do physics experiments on consciousness, or is this totally, you know, uh, a surprise to you? No, I, I, I was hoping for it, certainly. And uh, I, I'm not a physicist, but I was uh, I studied a lot of physics in undergrad and have followed it along. And, and what uh, what we've found is that uh, uh, because of the aromatic rings, and the pi resonance where the where the conscious quantum stuff is happening, that quantum optical effects occur. And uh, what we've uh, been hearing about uh, here at this conference are uh, reports from two different laboratories, one at Princeton with uh, uh, Greg Scholes and Arat Kalra, where they did uh, uh, tryptophan fluorescence lifetimes in microtubules and tubulin, and found that if you, you zap a microtubule with a UV photon, there's a signal that propagates uh, 50 nanometers or so along the microtubule. That's a quantum process. And if you then add anesthesia, it goes away or you dampen it. And we did it with two different anesthetics, one a gas, although we did it in the liquid phase, and then the other uh, a soluble liquid anesthetic, etomidate. The gas was isofluorine. And, and that, uh, that's being written up now and, and should be a very nice paper. Uh, Arat Kalra was the uh, postdoc and did a superb job. And the other is in uh, a lab at University of Central Florida and the lab of Aristide Dogariu, who is a, a quantum optics guy who got into biology and, and he's been looking at a slightly different quantum optical effect in microtubules called delayed luminescence, where you, you hit the microtubule with a photon, but a much lower energy photon, a visible photon. And what you see there is that the microtubule actually uh, give, has what's called delayed luminescence. It gives, it gives off photons for up to a second or, or longer, which is a very long time in quantum, quantum effects. And also in his experiments, the anesthesia took away the, this delayed luminescence, which we think may be a phenomenon called super radiance, that there's a subradiant state and it leads to super radiance, which is the prolonged state. 
And uh, that seems to go away with anesthesia. What we want to do next is to do those studies in the gas phase uh, so that we can uh, have the microtubule in a chamber, in a plexiglass chamber, let's say, with air. And then we introduce uh, with the gas inlet a little anesthesia and see if the, the delayed luminescence super radiance goes away. And then when you, re when you uh, blow away the gas and uh, anesthesia and go back to air that it comes back like a, a patient going to sleep and waking up that's that's what we want to see and then uh we will do it for different anesthetics which have no different known potencies in putting people and animals to sleep and if the 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 potency in 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 dampening the super radiance matches the potency in putting humans and animals to sleep i think we have a darn good argument that that's yeah. the the molecular correlate of consciousness and I have to say, Brian, that 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 uh, these experiments are, you know, preliminary, but they're very promising. They go in the right direction. And I think they're far more than any other theory of consciousness has, really, because uh, we're we're not qu quite at the mechanism. We're not at Roger's objective reduction, but we think these quantum optical effects lead to the objective reduction. And how that happens is, is a whole nother story mm -hmm. that maybe we can talk about when you talk about the uh, the, the controversy because that, that's related. Yeah. To it. Yeah. Well, I want to get to that in, in a second, but, uh, one, one thing, you know, came to me as a terrifying thought. I, I heard, um, I got a genetic test recently, uh, it's just part of a, of a checkup and it came back that I'm 99.7%, uh, genetic garbage. But besides that, I say nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. But, um, but it also said that there, um, that I respond to anesthesia. In other words, I, you know, that I don't have inhibitors or I, I can, I don't, um, you know, reuptake them or I, I forget exactly that you'll be able to correct me in about two seconds. Uh, but there are people, the doctor told me, that don't that you know will have anesthetic applied, anesthesia applied, and they'll be fully conscious. And in other words, there are people you can't turn off genetically. They don't. They have a predisposition. Can you explain what that is? And then what if could these types of people be sort of a control? In other words, obviously conscious, but not responding to anesthesia as a typical you know normal member of the society would or population would. Can you explain what's going on here? Well, I'm not aware of people being totally immune to anesthesia. There are there are genetic conditions where people are resistant and need more. But anesthesia always wins, at least in my experience. If we give enough, they'll go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And one of the genetic uh, 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 traits that is resistant to anesthesia is red hair. So redheads require more. And so we have redhead patient, red hair, redheaded patient. We give them a little <laughs> bit more. No, no big deal. Uh, another category of patients that is resistant to anesthesia are people who are taking the anti-cancer drug Taxol, which mm. stabilizes microtubules, and they require more anesthesia. So uh, those are two examples of people being resistant to anesthesia, but I'm not aware of anybody being totally, totally uh, resistant. resistant. Yeah. Ah, I got it. Um, good. Uh, so, Roger, we, we heard recently uh, some results from an experiment uh, that was supported partially by the Foundational Questions Initiative. This took place in Grand Sasso, which is normally, I think of as a particle physics laboratory deep underneath the Dolomites, I believe it is, in, in Italy, not far from Rome. And there are many experiments done there, xenon experiments, dark matter detection experiments. Um, first of all, can you explain the experiment? Why was it put there? Uh, and what does it have to do with either bolstering or, or criticizing uh, or or Well, I should explain that um, the idea was to test an effect 
which people believed, or at least these people believed, should arise from a state reduction theory like mine. Now, the thing is, it depends on uh, a formula which tells you how long a, su a superposition between two states will last, which is actually due, due not to me, but to Laius Diyoshi. And he had this idea before I did. I independently came across the same formula uh, using ideas from based on general relativity, where his, I don't know quite where he got the ideas from first. So this was something in common between his theory of state reduction and mine. And when I say state reduction, I mean the collapse of the wave function. Now, the thing is that in his version, you would expect a certain effect of the substance would be heated, but spontaneously. So if you have a material which is isolated as best you can from the rest of the world, it would slightly heat up spontaneously by itself, just a little tiny bit. And the argument for that is that all the time you have superpositions in the body and these superpositions become one or the other all the time. And when they become one or the other, it sort of jumps. And this means this jumping is play, taking place all the time. And that has an effect that the body gets heated. And they did this experiment to try and test whether bodies would spontaneously heat. And they found that they didn't. Now, to me, that's not the expectation I have, because yeah. although my model had the same time scale as the Oshis did, it's not the same theory. And it's subtly rather different. And I suppose that's one of the reasons people didn't take it into consideration, that it's, it, I can, it only, put it, I can put it in a rather strange way. So you suppose the system is in a superposition, it becomes in a superposition of here and there. So it's originally in one place, then it becomes in a superposition of two places. Then after a certain point, it becomes one or the other. Now, if it does that, the state sort of jumps to one or the other. But that's not my view. The view that I have is that when it reduces to one or the other, it's as though it had been, suppose it reduces to this one rather than that one, mm -hmm. then that means state was in effect been this one all the time. And this is a strange theory because it sort of looks as though the world behaves retroactively. That is to say, it, it, you thought it was in a superposition and then it becomes as though it had been one or the other all the time. And you have to try and understand how that kind of retroactive behavior can make sense and doesn't allow you to send signals into the past, which would be disaster if you could do that disaster for, for physical theory. <laughs> but it's the reason that people didn't think of that idea. And I didn't think of it at first, but I had been thinking of it for you know a few years. I think two, two or three years I'd been taking that view seriously. For I think I was at one of Stuart's conferences on consciousness and it occurred to me that's the way you had to look at it. It's a little bit more subtle because to make it make sense, you have to take the view that there are two slightly different kinds of reality. Hmm. One of them is what I call classical reality, and the other is what I call quantum reality. And quantum reality, these superpositions kind of persist as two things at once. And the classical reality has got to be one or the other. And it goes back to that classical state of being one or the other. But it does it as though it had been that all the time. So it's kind of retroactive in that sense. The decision of which to do comes later, but then it becomes as though it had been that one all the time.
Hmm. You have to make that kind of crazy looking theory make sense. And the reason it's a, you know, people don't think about it is because it's a crazy looking theory. <laughs> and you have to realize why this theory, although crazy looking, does actually make sense and doesn't give you, you know, communication with the past and things like that. It doesn't give you sort of scientific nonsense. It really hangs together as a whole. Hmm. But I didn't have these different points of view, not even really fully together until a paper which I wrote, which should be coming out sometime this month, I gather. It's in, in, a, in a volume of different articles by a, a Chinese person called Shan, Shan Gao, and it's published by the Oxford University Press. And Stuart has an article in it, and I have a separate article in it, in this article, I do explain this point of view and how you can have these two kinds of reality and why it makes mm -hmm. sense. And, and Stuart, there's some questions we're taking from the audience. And by the way, you can always ask questions for all my guests. I have Nick Bostrom coming up, uh, Roger's uh, colleague over there in Oxford. Uh, he's coming on Monday. I have Bernardo Kastrup coming on. Uh, I've had Sabina Hassenfelder's episode is coming out. She did an interview with Sir Roger for her new book, uh, which is wonderful. Existential Physics comes out on Tuesday. Um, so stay tuned. Also, you can ask questions on my YouTube channel or on my Twitter account. So there's some questions that have come in, and um, and I want to start taking some of them because I know you guys, it's getting late for Roger at least. Um, Stuart, people are asking about psychedelics, which are you know maybe, uh, maybe the opposite of anesthesia in a certain sense. Maybe they heighten awareness in, in certain ways. Uh, is there a role for these uh, if you could arrange the permissions to do it? And I know there are people at Johns Hopkins, Tim Ferriss is famously leading a big study or funding a big study for um, Stanford, I believe. Is there a role of psychedelics in addition to anesthesia in consciousness research? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we, we were discussing that and uh, we hope to do those experiments. Uh, they are tricky. The prediction is, or my prediction is, that they would have the opposite effect. And if you look at the molecules, uh, uh, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, they're, they're aromatic rings, just like the uh, tryptophan, very similar to tryptophan uh, in, inside the tubulin. And so they have these electron uh, pi resonance orbitals that are, are fluorescent, luminescent, delayed luminescence, super radiance, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, the prediction would be that if you, and, and the other one prediction is that they will bind directly to microtubules. Now, most uh, uh, researchers will say, well, they bind to the 5-HT2A receptor on the membrane surface, which they do, but they're very, they're small, nonpolar, and they get inside and should bind to, to microtubules directly and would increase the quantum optical effects that we saw dampened by anesthesia. They would go in the opposite direction. Mm. So that's, uh, that's a very important, and, and we, we hope to show that. Um, could I, could I address the, uh, the, the experiments that Roger was referring to? Yeah, please do. Because so they uh, Di so Diashi is was one of the uh, uh, investigators, and they were looking for radiation which would prove uh, his theory of OR, whereas Roger's theory of OR uh, does not uh, predict radiation. And so they did this experiment, and over two months, and to make a long story short, they found no radiation. So uh, what they could have done, I think, is say, well, okay, Diashi OR is wrong, Penrose OR is correct. But they didn't, they didn't want to accept that. And what they did was they said, one of the parameters must be wrong. So the parameter that they looked at is it has to do with, with the nature of superposition. 
How can something be in two places at once? What does that mean? And of course, Roger explained it by saying, by taking the uh, equivalent curvature in space-time geometry and saying you have opposing uh, uh, curvatures. And when we did our, our, our first paper, Roger and I, in, in uh, 96, he said the first thing we have to do is calculate, uh, you know, the superposition of the, how can a protein be separated from itself? And he gave me the homework assignment of look at it as the whole protein partially separated from itself. Uh, look at it at the level of each atomic nucleus in that protein separated from itself, totally side by side, or look at the nucleons, the, the protons and the neutrons. And he gave me the equations and I, and I did the algebra and it was, it was quite fun actually, something different for me. And the, long, the, the, the point was that the atomic nuclei separated from the, themselves by 2.5 Fermi lengths, uh, femtometers, the, the, the radius of the carbon nucleus, um, was optimal, would, would be the dominant effect. Mm -hmm. So we use that to calculate the gravitational self-energy of the protein, uh, and that gives us the time, uh, for how many proteins you need to collapse at a given time. And we did those uh, numbers, uh, it, came, it came out quite sensibly, actually. So um, anyway, the, after the Grand Sasso experiments, the, they didn't uh, want to accept that there was no radiation. So they said the, these, this superposition separation that, that they had apparently initially used our, our value of 2.5 Fermi's must be wrong. And the, lar and, and the lower that number, and ours was a, a small separation, the, the greater the radiation. If, if that's a bigger spread, then there would be no radiation. They said, well, there must be a much bigger spread so that there's no, no radiation. And they calculated this, the smear factor, quite literally, they called it the smear factor, R, R0. It would have to be on the order of an angstrom, five orders of magnitude bigger than what we had said. And that's for the nucleus, which makes the, the atom uh, bigger than the, the, almost as big as a cell, you know, bigger than the, the protein for sure. It'd be uh, a micron. So uh, that didn't make any sense, but, uh, but that, that made them happy because uh, then they, they could account for the lack of, of radiation. And, but then they kind of uh, blamed us for some reason. They said hmm. that this was because Penrose OR didn't work. And, and they said, and, and they tried to develop their own version of ORC OR based on Diasi OR, which they had apparently just refuted. So it didn't really make any sense to me. And I thought the, uh, the uh, criticism levied at us in those papers was, was, was bogus. And I think the, the headline in the uh, FQXI uh, uh, press release, which said collapsing a leading theory of the quantum origin of consciousness was unfair and completely wrong. And right. So Roger, one, one question comes to mind, you know, we think about gravitational effects uh, these, you know, systems are are distributed uh, in space and time. Typically, we think about uh, the, the the fundamental object of space time being the metric, and then from the metric, we can derive uh, all sorts of properties, including expansion and, and so forth. But when we uh, when we think about um, you know gravitational effects and perturbations, you know better than anybody. You're you know, uh, incredible work on black holes, which resulted in you uh, being the co-recipient of the Nobel Prize two years ago. Um, that, you know, is involving massive objects. And, and it's always, you know, occurred to people, you know, that this is, this is sort of strange. You know, how do gravitational perturbations manifest themselves on such small scales uh, as microtubules? And how are they, how, how does a microtubule distinguish the wild curvature 
at a point, you know, in, uh, uh, you know, at some three-dimensional point in my brain uh, from something that's one nanometer away from it or a few nanometers away from it on the scale of these microtubules. I mean, isn't the wire curvature in classical GR, isn't it a smooth, continuous analog function that uh, shouldn't vary so radically as to initiate? different conscious experiences. In other words, how can the wild curvature, a classical object, how can that influence, you know, quantum mechanics? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, it's all part of that. It has to be all part of one theory. I'm not completely sure I understand the question. I mean, it's a question of numbers. And yeah. sure, the gravitational effects are extremely tiny. And there's no question about that. I mean, you, you could... You couldn't measure the the, uh, the gravitational attraction of a microtubule or something like that. It's much too small. But then you 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 have to if you're looking at the collapse time, you have to compare it with a, with a natural. How do I put this? You see, there's a natural unit of when you combine quantum mechanics and gravity. There's a natural unit of mass. There's a natural unit of energy. Um, some of these things are big and some are small, and you've got to get them in the right way. So, the, for example, the mass is what's called a Planck mass, which in ordinary scales is pretty small, but from a point of view of a, an, an amoeba or something, it's huge. So, and then you've got the Planck energy, which is huge anyway. That's that's a sort of massive explosion. And then you've got the uh, the, the uh, Planck time, or what it's called, which is. You see, the time, you, you just have to get these numbers in the right place, that's all. So, so when you're looking at a, a small superposition, um, sure, the time scale for it to collapse into one or the other could be extremely long. But certainly if it was a, a, a hydrogen um, molecule or something like that, well, that would be enormously long time. Two mm-hmm. places at once would be longer than the current age of the universe from the Big Bang to now. So it's it's uh, much longer than that. Whereas mm-hmm. if you were looking at a, an amoeba, I'd have to think about it. You see, I think for an mm-hmm. amoeba, <laughs> I'm not sure. Certainly, if you're if you're thinking about, uh, I mean, you're getting up to the scale where the collapse times could be very rapid. If you had a grain of sand, it would be a ridiculously small fraction of a second. So mm-hmm. it's very but if no. you take a amoeba, I would have to think. I haven't done the calculation. We've cal- excuse me. We've calculated that for tubulins, of course. We know that yeah. uh, 10, to the, ten to the fifteenth tubulins will reach threshold in ten to the minus seventh, ten to minus seven seconds. So, uh, roughly uh, uh, ten megahertz uh, frequency of these orco or collapses in the brain. Hmm. Yeah, and- so it's, it's a question of getting the the, the parameters right. And also, you're never quite sure um, whether you're simply putting the object in a superposition of two places, you have to worry about the environment it's in because it'll disturb the, the things around it. And uh, it also depends what size it is too. So, so if it's the same mass, but it's much, much smaller, then the, the effect will be quicker than if it's that mass and, and bigger. 
So you have to look at all these factors. Mm -hmm. And Roger, when I look back, you know, in kind of the history of <clears throat> of general relativity, um, I often bring up this fact, which I want to relate to co computation, and that's artificial intelligence. Um, mm. I think about Einstein, and you know, uh, as well as anybody, what he called the happiest thought of his life, and that was that um, if he was in free fall, he wouldn't experience gravitational field. Uh, yeah. And I want to ask you, at what level could a computer, even in principle, uh, experience both happiness, the happiest thought <laughs> of its existence, A, and B, the bodily sensation of free fall? In other words, the emperor and the emperor's new mind, how could it even come close to this Revelation, which then led to GR and, and the equivalence principle and everything else. In other words, are you sanguine about artificial intelligences becoming conscious? Or how could they, if, if so? Well, they wouldn't. I mean, my view is that if you're just looking at computation, that doesn't involve consciousness. And this is certainly one of the arguments I was making in The Emperor's New Mind, right? going right back to that. And it has to do with the fact that um, computers don't understand anything. And the argument I'd use was the, basically goes to Gödel. For some reason, I, I always thought it was obvious, but other people had trouble understanding it. I didn't quite understood this. But you see, I, when I was a graduate student in Cambridge, I went to three courses, which were nothing to do with what I was doing. I was doing pure mathematics, algebraic geometry, and I went to a course by Bondi on general relativity and by Dirac on quantum mechanics. And you can see what these people had a big effect on me. But the third, third lecture I went to was a course by, by a man called Steen on mathematical logic. And I'd been puzzled by Gödel's theorem. It seemed to show there were things in mathematics you couldn't prove. Right. And what it shows is nothing like that. It's that if you have a certain set of procedures that you could put on a computer, so there are they are basically computational procedures or checkable by a computer, put it like that. So they're computable in that sense. Then if they are your, all you can use to prove things, you, you set these are the rules that we, uh, we adopt to prove things. Then you, what Gödel shows, it's an amazing thing. I always thought it was amazing. Here is a statement which you, by virtue of your trust in these rules, you can see that it's true, yet you can't prove it by the rules. Now, I found hmm. this absolutely amazing because it means you're, you don't use the rules to, to understand things because how do you know this thing is true? You know it's true but because you trust the rules. Well, it's, you're, you're, if you're using the rules, then how do you know that using the rules only gives you truth? Well, because you've looked at the rules and you say, okay, they're all right. Yeah, I trust them. And what the Gödel theorem depends on is not using the rules, but your belief that these rules actually work. And that depends on understanding the rules. So it seems to me, it's what it shows you is the quality of understanding something isn't constrained by rules of any kind. And that's basically the argument which I've been using all the time. And yeah. I, to me, Gödel showed that very clearly. I mean, you have to bring in a few other things afterwards, but it's basically the Gödel theorem, which says that the, what, the way we believe in what things are true in mathematics is not governed by a fixed set of rules. 
So what, what we use, we use understanding. Mm. So I'm saying understanding is not a fixed set of rules. It's not algorithmic. It's not a computer is not capable of understanding. So that's the argument. Sorry, that, that's a long. No, no, I, I think that that's very helpful. I guess you know, from my perspective, physicists suffer from mathematician envy, in, in that we don't have an equivalent of Gödel's incompleteness theorem for physics. And usually, what people do is substitute in Popperianism, you know, a falsification uh, dialectic. And it doesn't seem to me to fully adequately solve, you know, what is properly held within the realm of, of, of physics and what is lies without it and what's incomplete or, 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 you know, not about physics. I mean, obviously, we don't think physics is complete or completable even. Uh, but I guess, you know, the question of, of what, you know, doing the best we can, I know you're not such a huge fan of Popper in terms of, uh, you know, being the ultimate arbiter of what is scientific, but lacking an equivalent of Gödel for physics uh, and especially for consciousness. Um, so I, I guess my question would be, what would it take to convince you uh, that that this is the true, you know, that, that Orcoar is the actual description of, of what's going on uh, in conscious beings? And, and is, there, is there a definitive, as, as, as Popper, with a crisp experiment? Is there a crisp result? Um, Again, I know you don't believe that Popper is the last word, but is there some result that you'd like to see? It might be the experimental work of Yvette Fuentes, um, who I want to talk about uh, in, in a different one, in a different conversation. But is there a possibility to have a test, Roger, that would definitively either prove you wrong, falsify you, or, or prove uh, you and Stuart you know, are on the right track? Well, I don't know about definitive, because things in physics you know, even even when they're very well tested, lots of people still argue on other right. You know, general relativity is now very, very beautifully confirmed theory in all sorts of ways. But there are still people who, even Einstein, curiously enough, uh, I think would have thought that it was, well, I mean, he said this, but he didn't think it was the, I often wondered what Einstein would have thought about my theorem, you see, mm -hmm. which shows gravitational collapse gives you singularities. My guess is that he, not that he wouldn't have, believe my theorem, he would have thought, oh, well, that just shows you general relativity is wrong. Earliest <laughs> <laughs> reaction I got from certain people. I know Bob Dickey, in, in, when I visited Princeton after this, he slapped me on the back and said, you've done it. You've showed general relativity is wrong. That wasn't <laughs> what I thought I was doing, you see. But I mean, you see, these things are, there isn't anything definitive in these experiments. You just sort of eventually have enough evidence to push the majority of people in a certain direction. We're a long way from that now. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't see it yeah. happening very soon. And Stuart, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, kind of upcoming experiments, well, first of all, would either one of you like to talk about the experiments of uh, Fuentes and all and, and her uh, campaign to to uh, use uh, Bose-Einstein condensates? What is the, what's the background behind it? What's the experimental motivation? And uh, when can we expect results well, this is, it's basically uh, an approach to trying to t test the OR part of OCOR. You see, OCOR involves the physical idea that, that gravitational influences give you a collapse of the wave function. So you have a, a genuine formula for, for how long a collapse, that's a formula that Dioshi put forward, but a different proposal from that. And this hasn't yet been tested experimentally. I, I had hoped that 
Dirk Baumister would have done it by now because he was doing an experiment where you put a little mirror in a, in a superposition of two locations. And I thought by now he, he, it looked as though he was going to have the answer by now, but I think he found out that the system was, was needed to be cooled much more than it had been. So he doesn't have a definitive answer. There are other schemes where people have little tiny beads and they try to put them in a superposition. But all these things are pretty far away yet from, from actually getting to this point. And for, uh, Yvette Fuentes' idea is, is to use Bose-Einstein condensates, and she's an expert on that area. I mean, using these things for gravitational wave detection was wonderful, a wonderful idea, I thought. But this is trying to use them. You can put a Bose-Einstein condensate. This is a, um, you have to have it extremely cold. And these um, materials, when they get very, very cold, they behave in a certain sense like big, big state, big quantum system. I mean, it behaves like, like being a big atom, in a sense. The wave function is very macroscopic. And you have to get them extremely cold. And these things are very good objects for getting them to test. If put it in two places at once, and will it become one or the other? This experiment is still a few years off, I'm afraid. Um, but one reason she had a lot of problem getting funding. I think she's got funding now, at least for getting it started. So it's you still have to wait five or ten years before mm. the thing is set up. It may well be you can see effects earlier than that. There are ideas that she has and other people have where you might be able to test uh, before it actually becomes one or the other, the effects of it potentially going to become one or the other. Mm. And, and maybe the way we'll actually get the test working. So, um, sooner. so uh, there's a, a question from Cirrus K. Lee. Um, for both of you guys, uh, and that is uh, quantum mechanical effects in microtubules. Uh, the the name microtubule suggests you know one dimensional you know tubes if you like. Uh, Stuart, you've talked about matrices or crystalline you know sort of structures perhaps. Um, and now the question is 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 as much as you know the dimensionality uh, argument. You know is it is it possible to have let me say this translating the question perhaps um, could you have a two dimensional uh, conscious creature uh, or effectively, you know, uh, quasi two-dimensional conscious creature? Or is there something about three dimensions of space plus one of time that's crucial? Uh, I'd have to think about that. I mean, micro, you could think of a microtubule as a two-dimensional object wrapped in a cylinder, but the walls of that cylinder are a lattice of individual proteins uh, called tubulin. And there's about a billion tubulins in every neuron. And as far as memory, uh, well, let me digress a little bit. Um, we don't really know where memory is stored in the brain. People say in the synapses, but the proteins that make up synapses are transient and only last hours to days, and yet memories can last lifetimes. And uh, microtubules seem to be the best candidate for memory. And each one of those billion tubulins in a neuron can be in one of many, many different states. Genetic iso iso isoforms, there's 22 different genetic forms in the brain, fewer and less, less uh, tissues. Uh, each tubulin can be post-translationally modified. So you have probably uh, 20, 30 possibilities for each tubulin. So it's, I don't know, uh, 10 to the 9th raised to the 10 to the uh, 30th or something like that. An enormous amount of information capacity in uh, and the and these microtubules are 
are frozen, not not frozen per se, but a cap so that uh, this, they they retain their their lattice position. They're not uh, they don't disassemble and reassemble as they would in a cell that needs uh, needs to uh, divide for mitosis. Mm. For um, Interesting. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, in the question, uh, two dimensions can give rise to a three dimensional hologram, and whether that's happened, people have suggested that, and uh, whether there's interference leading to that is a possibility that's been raised for many years, going back to Prebrum, and came up again at this meeting. But um, uh, like I said, we found quantum optical effects in microtubules that go away with anesthesia, and and that's. Uh, that's something uh, you mentioned. Popper. Let me go, let me go back. Uh, mm-hmm. I, uh, before we did this, I, I went out, I, I went out on a limb, and uh, Roger w- was not totally pleased with me because I said, if we don't find quantum optical effects in microtubules, or if we find them and they're not inhibited by anesthesia, then orcoar would be falsified. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roger, Roger said, "Well, you know, it could be a different mechanism uh, other than the quantum optical effects." I, I started to worry a little bit. And he said, uh, so you put all our eggs in one basket or both of our eggs in one basket. So <laughs> I kind of uh, was a little worried about that. But fortunately, uh, the experiments proved exactly that. We showed quantum optical effects in microtubules and they go away with anesthesia. Although uh, we've only tried uh, aliquots of, of a few different anesthetics. We want to do it more systemically. Mm. Um, so I have another question from uh, you guys. So in this uh, context, as I mentioned, I'm talking with Nick Ballstrom. I've talked to... David Chalmers uh, about these uh, issues of um, ultimate AI, perhaps, and the so-called simulation hypothesis. Uh, Roger, are you familiar with uh, your colleague over there in Oxford uh, and his ideas uh, about superintelligence? You'll have to remind me what that is. Sorry. I, I mean, I think in some sense oh, yeah. it's it's a it's a conjecture that you know, with ever increasing Moore's law power, uh, eventually, right. yeah, there'd be a supercomputer that could simulate. Uh, even a human brain, even our human, uh, um, our, our human experiences, perhaps perceptions. What do you make of that argument? I mean, I, I would take it that you're a skeptic, but um, uh, right. how could how could something even be uh, reconciled? Is that does that fall within the realm of physics, or is it pure philosophy? Well, I don't believe it. But but then you said you didn't think I believe it. Um, it's just, I mean, they you can fool people to a certain extent. I mean, you can maybe have a machine which. I mean, they're very far from what's called passing the Turing test, even now. You can make machines, that is to say, can you talk to a, a thing and distinguish whether it's a human being or, or a, a very powerful computer? And that's what people refer to as the Turing test, because I think Turing <laughs> considered this possibility and rather considered that maybe you could. But the view that I'm holding is that we're very, very long way from that. You might fool people for quite a long time. The question is, how long can you fool them? And you realize it's just, it's, there's no person. We're a long way from it now. I mean, you, 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 these um, devices which you know, are supposed to keep you happy on the phone, there's no, I, no, there's, they're nowhere close to, mm-hmm. to exhibiting anything like a conscious being there. But you could imagine with the future technology, um, they could get pretty good at this, but that's not so surprising. I mean, you can fool people in all sorts of ways. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean it really is. is um, I think it's not a bad test, actually, just to talk to a gadget. I mean, I, I talk, what was this, this machine's name? I forgot the name there. 
but I, she was completely hopeless. I tried to have a conversation with her. Is that Sabina or? No, that's a real person. Oh, <laughs> you're, saying, you're saying you were conversing with a, oh, okay, so that's like Lisa or, yeah, Eliza. <laughs> <No, laughs> Sabina's very much real, although she's German, oh, so she's very, she is, very yes. precise. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask Roger a question about that? Yeah, of course. Roger, is it true that you cannot simulate a quantum system? I'm going the no cloning system, in which case that would kind of rule out the simulation hypothesis of Chalmers and everybody. Well, you can simulate, I mean, it's pretty hard, but you can, no, you can simulate a quantum system. Well, you can do it with a quantum computer, if you like. That's, that's what they're for. That's what they're good for. But um, no, that's a computational procedure. I mean, that's okay. The Schrodinger equation, you can make it, you know, simulate the Schrodinger equation. But as Schrodinger pointed out, that isn't what real things do because they collapse. So you but have you, to have collapse part two. Mm. Collapse part well, you as well. You couldn't simulate OR. Well, that's the idea, is that OR is something which involves a non-computational process. I mean, that was so the idea. Yeah. The simulation hypothesis is out the window. Yes. I mean, it's, it's just that uh, it's not true in, in, in this view. This view is that the OR process is not computational. And some people say, well, what can I, can I mean? There, mathematically, you can produce things which are not computational. There are theorems you can show that certain quite simple things are not computational. This is hard for people who don't know about these things to believe somehow. You can say, oh, you have a more powerful computer and that would solve the problem. No, there are certain things which you can see, even quite simple problems. Even things like um, if you're given a set of shapes which are made up of square, things called polyominoes. These are plain shapes made out of equal squares glued together along their edges. And you're given a set of these shapes. And you want to know, can you tile the plane with those shapes? Can you fill up the whole plane with no overlaps and no gaps? And whether you can or not is a non-computational question. There is no algorithm for doing this. And I think people find this hard to believe without knowing about these things, that you can have problems like this for which there is no algorithm. The answer yes or no is not algorithmic. So this and yet, does that imply that, it's, that you know, there is something unique about the conscious experience, or does that just reflect the limits of mathematics? In other words, yes, there are things that are not computable, but um, within the framework of mathematics. Um, but is that all consciousness? You know, is that all there is? <laughs> and I'm not getting metaphysical no. here, but but no, surely there's more to being a conscious being than being able to compute things. I mean, my infant can't compute anything, but it's very conscious. Being not being able to compute things is really no. <laughs> um, but no, no, no. I always argued. I make this very clear point. I hope, clear mm -hmm. point, that I'm only talking about one tiny bit of what consciousness does for us. Yes. It doesn't tell us anything about what the perception of the color green is. It doesn't tell us anything about love. It doesn't tell us <laughs> anything about happiness. It doesn't tell us anything about pain. There are all these qualities which, which are to do with consciousness. It doesn't tell you anything about any of them except the one quality which it's aimed at, which is that of understanding. And the only reason I'm focusing on that is because I can say something about it. And the argument is that whatever understanding is, and it requires consciousness, you, it, just to understand something is a conscious procedure, that that particular quality of consciousness 
is not a computational process. Right. And that I regard as a pretty clear argument. It doesn't tell you anything about the most of the other things people talk about when they talk about consciousness. But I'm not trying to argue in that direction. I'm trying to argue in the opposite direction to say that the things that consciousness can do, at least some of them, are not computational. And so there must be something else involved in them than something you could put on a computer. So it's not something to put on the computer. You can have a very, very complicated computer, which can answer all sorts of complicated questions, but it's still not conscious. <laughs> very good. So folks are asking a bunch of questions. I want to finish up in just a few minutes. It's getting late for Sir Roger. Um, so one of them is how do people get involved in your work, uh, guys, in particular in uh, you know a physics student and maybe um, you know a, a, someone in biology or neuroscience, neurobiology, with you, Stuart. So uh, first of all, Roger, do you have recommend career advice for folks uh, <laughs> on the channel? Well, I shouldn't say this, but I mean, the point of writing a book like The Road to Reality was that it would guide people into, into science relatively harmlessly so they could get some feeling for what these subjects are like without kind of uh, getting too involved in too many complicated calculations and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think getting people excited about a subject is the main thing. And if you get excited about a subject, then you're prepared to work hard. And that's the main main point is to say, look, oh, this is great. it. Yeah. And uh, Stuart, what about you on your side of things as uh, as the um, you know squishy wet uh, representative, as opposed to the black hole and uh, you know experimental Bose Einstein condensate representative? Um, what do you recommend? Somebody's really fascinated by this; they want to yeah. get more involved. How how do they do it as a student or maybe as a layperson? Yeah. The well, the field of quantum biology uh, is is coming out of the the closet, so to speak, coming in, 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 out of the darkness. And uh, because it was ridiculed by so many uh, seemingly knowledgeable people, it's impossible, blah, blah, blah. Um, but now it's, 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 a, it's a real phenomenon. We, we see, you know, photosynthesis, uh, uh, maybe bird navigation, uh, consciousness, probably uh, even cognition in terms of binding, the binding problem in neuroscience and uh, requires quantum effects, uh, you know, uh, brain-wide gamma synchrony. Uh, it's hard to explain by nerve propagation and even with ephaptic uh, transmission. So quantum biology is becoming real. And I think it's going to open up a lot of, uh, a lot of avenues and a lot of uh, opportunities uh, in pharmacology, uh, uh, quantum optical pharmacology and that sort of thing. So the people that have been involved with the uh, Templeton project here, uh, we're forming a group uh, and, and uh, we'll be uh, going forward so you may have to sneak up on it because you may you may come up against a somebody who thinks it, it hasn't gotten the word that it's not nonsense which it was described after many years but i think it's actually at the vanguard of of the future of neuroscience and uh you know neuroscience needs a revolution let me let me say that the brain is a, a complex computer of simple neurons it just doesn't work and I think a better model is a, is a multi-scale hierarchy and people go from neurons upwards into networks of, and then networks of networks, but also going downward. And we've identified 18 orders of magnitude going down from the level of neurons into the microtubule bundles, microtubules, the aromatic uh, the, uh, tryptophans, the electron uh, dipoles, and all the way down eventually to Roger's uh, space-time geometry. So um, I think uh, this is going to be changing things. And I think neuroscience needs a new paradigm because the old one really doesn't work.
Very good. Okay, guys, in the last couple of minutes, I want to do uh, something that I've done with Roger in the past, which is to ask a bunch of existential questions. I used to call these the thrilling three. They're all based on Sir Arthur C. Clarke's uh, many, many laws, but I never asked Stuart because this is your first time solo appearing, on, or not solo appearing, but appearing on the podcast. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you these questions. So I'm going to first ask uh, you both a question that I didn't ask Sir Roger. And that has to do with Arthur's, um, Arthur's um, I believe it was his third law. No, actually, it was his... Isaac Asimov, I think, you think. Oh, no, th that, no, these are... Uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke had all these laws. So one of which is uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. We'll, we'll get to that. But the first oh, one, yeah. The first one I want to ask you, Sir Roger and Stuart, but I, I haven't asked Roger this. Um, Roger, uh, Roger uh, Arthur C. Clarke said that when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, they are almost certainly right. When they state that something is impossible, they are very probably wrong. Um, I want to ask you, uh, Roger, and then you, Stuart, um, what have you changed your mind about recently? Uh, you both are maybe not elderly. Well, Roger, let's face it, you're you're almost middle-aged, so that's maybe not, not uh, elderly, but... Um, but how do you react? How how have you or what have you changed your mind about, if anything, recently? Recently, well, it depends. You see, since you you say I'm a youngster, so I can multiply that up by a fairly large factor. Uh, being almost ninety-one, so um, if I'm allowed to go back about twenty years, I certainly had a big change of mind. So I mean, I mean, am I? Does that count? <laughs> yeah, it counts. So what was it about? What was the change of heart about? It was about cosmology. You see, mm -hmm. I used to believe, like everybody else, that the origin of the universe was the Big Bang. I had a lot of problem with it because this, this fundamental problem, which has to do with why is that event so very strange and peculiar. It's very mm. improbable. And then I formed a view, which is how it came about, which is it's not the beginning at all, that it's the continuation of what I call a pre previous eon, and it's the remote future of that eon sort of compressed down into what we think is the Big Bang. And there are many ob observations now which seem to confirm this theory. People seem to ignore it for some strange reason. The paper which came out two years ago now in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, as far as I'm aware, there is no paper of criticism of this. There are people which cr criticize the previous version that was on the archive but that had to be taken out down when the actual article was published. And in this thing, we claim there are these spots in the sky, which we call hawking points or hawking spots. And these are seen. And they're seen with great confidence level. And I, I wouldn't have predicted those being there without having this theory. And they, are, they do seem to be there in the observations. I'm not quite sure whether this is answering your question or not. Well, I mean, it's um, not exactly. I mean, the the, the question is, what have you changed your mind about? It. But but I think I think it's fair to say, uh, you know, that that having ideas, the boldness of your ideas, and having conviction are, are, are is certainly an important aspect of scientific success. As I think, you know, admitting mistakes or accepting challenges, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess with, um, and we talked on your 90th birthday, I presented an update just for those of you who are interested. Stuart will send me the link again later, but we, we had a very fascinating conversation 
among cosmologists and neuroscientists. But um, when I spoke, I spoke about the current state of uh, research into Hawking points. I'll put a link to that somewhere below eventually or above. I, I don't know where it's going to be floating around. But um, but Roger, have you ever thought about um, you know even more controversial things? I'm thinking about you know. Now, at least in the kind of zeitgeist in America, there's a lot of talk about the existence of extraterrestrials and, and things like that. Have you ever contemplated that, you know, standard orthodox scientific lore could be wrong or, or it might have a position uh, when it comes to the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence or technology? Well, I think it, I think it should be out there. The question is how far away? And there is this thing called the SETI program where people try and look for this in very, very distant galaxies. You might see, get signals. Now, the point of view which we, Vahe Gosejan and I put forward in a paper was that if you have this previous eon thing, which I talked about, you might get signals from beings. They probably would have to be gravitational wave signals because you, to get through from one to the next, it's a bit hard to see how to do this. And there are ways, but gravitational waves are probably the most likely. So you might see in gravitational wave signals evidence for some previous civilization, which would be quite possible. I mean, I, I've could they use uh, other signals like neutrinos, or would those suffer um, from degradation? Or it's a possibility. Neutrinos are another possibility. Yes, mm -hmm. I think gravitational waves are the best bet. Uh-huh. Okay. Very good. Okay. Yeah. I never asked you about that. So it's good that we got the chat about that. Um, Stuart, I want to go back to you now and ask you that same question. Uh, you're not elderly, but um, but you're distinguished. Um, so I'd like to ask you, what have you changed your mind? Of? Say that I'm again. Sorry. I am pretty elderly, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you remind me of some of the guys I see surfing uh, down in, in San Diego. Um, Stuart, tell me, what have you changed your mind about, if anything, recently? Well, I used to think, as other people do, that the brain is a computer. And I think instead, as I said before, it's more of a multi-scale hierarchical system, more like a musical system in some sense. I've referred to it as a quantum orchestra. Uh, and because I, I think the computational metaphor uh, doesn't work because, well, it works to a, to a point, but it, it treats neurons as simple on-off switches. And that's an insult to neurons. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you go inside neurons, there's all this uh, uh, interesting, uh, uh, I hate to use the word complex, because I think complexity is often the last refuge of the bewildered, just say it's complex, and that explains everything, which yeah. I think is wrong. But you have all this, this structure, these microtubules doing all this interesting quantum uh, stuff, and quantum computation, uh, reducing by OR is not the kind of computation I was uh, disillusioned with. So uh, I'd say that one thing is that the brain is a multi-scale hierarchical system, more like music than a, than a classical computer. Ah, very good. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you some of the questions I asked Roger about uh, many, many times in the past and his many appearances. And I want to also remind folks, you can subscribe to my channel uh, for updates. We'll have Sabina Hassenfelder coming on and she'll be live in the chat room on Tuesday. Uh, this will be the, uh, what is it? The, the ninth, I believe, the day after Roger's birthday. Um, so join in. And Roger features prominently in her book, which is around here somewhere in my underground bunker. Uh, it's quite, quite interesting. And she does talk about consciousness and quantum mechanics, as we have discussed. But if you join my mailing list, you'll get updates on all these things. And you may win a little tiny bit of 
of uh, space dust. Here's a little tiny meteorite that I'm giving away to the first hundred people that join my mailing list at briankeating.com slash list. So I'll put that. Brian, can I say something about space dust? Because I've been working with uh, planetary scientist Dante Loretta, who uh, put this uh, probe out and has scooped up carbonaceous material from the asteroid. Yeah. He's bringing it back and he's looking for organic molecules and uh, these these polyaromatic hydrocarbons, very similar to the organic molecules in our bodies and inside our microtubules, uh, are are everywhere in space apparently, including uh, uh, interstellar dust. And they're these uh, they have the aromatic rings and so forth. And uh, these may be the and they radiate terahertz, so they may be a form of uh, an origin, a source of the origin of life and consciousness. And Dante thinks that. Uh, origin of life and consciousness are very closely related. And what about you? Since since we're here, uh, what do you think about the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence, technology? Are there people that uh, could could advance this field uh, millennia by uh, just the mere existence of extraterrestrial intelligence? Well, we ha- we've seen these these images of these uh, unidentified, uh, what do they call it? Unidentified... Uh, aerial air- phenomena. Aerial phenomena. And uh, they're they're very interesting, and uh, I, I don't think you can just dismiss them as as artifact or hallucination or or fake. And uh, I heard one interesting talk that when they they suddenly move and accelerate, there's no heat trail behind them, and and that they might have you know this is more Rogers area than than mine that they might have their propulsion mechanism might have something to do with with gravity or or. Uh, or bending space time or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they also might be some kind of metamaterial that's, that's changing, changing shape and, and whatnot. So I don't know, I, I probably said more than I should about that. But I think, you know, there, there's probably a lot out there. <laughs> and they've just chosen not to communicate with us. And who can blame them? Because uh, there's a lot of problems there. Right, exactly. Okay, next question that I ask all my beloved guests uh, has to do with your, um, I would say, imminent future, but not too imminent, hopefully, uh, when you depart this mortal coil at age 120, in the biblical sense, uh, you will leave this earth, your material goods will go, I don't know, University of Arizona, uh, your wonderful wife and family, I don't know. Uh, but where will your, what will be your, your ideological legacy, your ethical legacy, what would you like to impart to all of humanity after you leave this earth in hopefully not for till 120 years old? What ethics or wisdom do you want to leave? Oh, that's for me? That's for you. Yes. I I asked Roger in the past. uh, He's welcome to answer or, or he's welcome to rebut your answer, but that would be rude and he would never do that. Well, first of all, uh, I, I might disagree with Roger about this, but I, I'm I'm not ruling out afterlife because if consciousness is happening in the fabric of space-time geometry, uh, then it. And uh, I was asked this about near-death and out-of-body experiences many years ago, and I said, well, uh, you know, it could be that the quantum information uh, dissipates to the universe but stays entangled as a as as some kind of entity, and. Uh, I, I, I don't claim evidence for that. I'm not holding you know, my own hopes for that. I'm not planning on it, but I don't think you can rule it out. Until we know uh, what consciousness is in, you know, between the ears, we can't rule it out outside. And I think there's uh, you know, enough evidence for, for non-locality and, uh, and consciousness and this and that. Roger, what That's do you think cool. about the afterlife? I, I haven't actually asked you that. Uh, I suspect you're 
uh, not optimistic about it. But what are what are your thoughts directly? Well, to start with, I'm certainly an atheist. Yes. What when you say when I say an atheist, I mean I don't believe in any religion I've ever seen. It doesn't mean that I'm um, I'm I'm agnostic, if you like, with regard to the possibilities, uh, which are not religious possibilities. I mean, whether one's consciousness can somehow continue in some form. The problem is there, if it did, I can't imagine that you carry any memories. You see, if, if I, for example, was someone else before I was born, what's the use of that? Because I don't have any memory of that. Mm. So if there was some being who was me before I came along, mm -hmm. become me sort of loses its point in a sense. <laughs> So I don't quite see how that could work. There might be something else which is completely beyond our understanding. Since we know we know so little about consciousness, despite or or we know so little about it, it's a bit hard to pontificate on on what happens to it after it gets blown up or something. <laughs> an atomic nuclear bomb or something, you know, that right. usually right. happens. <laughs> Um, so Stuart, now I'm going to ask you a question that's, uh, related to Arthur's, uh, C. Clarke's famous statement that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that is, um, uh, and that is basically what object or theory or discovery in the history of humanity to date is most worthy of being preserved as sort of our most magical uh, uh, accomplishment as a species, something that we put on a monolith that might last for billions of years for these potential aliens to find someday. What What do you think is the uh, the thing that human beings should have the most swagger about? It doesn't have to be your discovery. It could be some anything that human beings have done. What should we brag about? Well, you know, quantum mechanics is is closest to magic among among the our science that you know non locality entanglement. Uh, over distance uh, and time. And, uh, uh, you know, Roger brought together uh, general relativity, consciousness, and uh, quantum mechanics. And in his recent work on retroactivity, uh, he didn't talk about it, but he's added special relativity because he uses special relativity to come up with the fact that, that, uh, that there, has to be, uh, there has to be this retroactivity. It's kind of the... Uh, the, the motivation for it. So, um, I, you know, if, if, uh, consciousness is, uh, you know, might be the answer to your question because, uh, uh, it, it seems like magic in terms of explaining it, people have, uh, gone to the extremes of saying that it will never, you know, ideal, not idealists, what they call them, uh, mysterians say, we'll never understand it. It's impossible. It's like, expecting a fish to read a dictionary or something like that. But I don't think that's true. I think, you know, Roger is way smarter than almost everybody. And, and I think he came up with this idea and uh, I think he's right. And uh, because it makes the most sense now it could be wrong, but it's logical. And, and I think that would be uh, something that would stand uh, forever. Mm -hmm. Very good. Okay. The last question <clears throat> and uh, Roger, you're welcome to chime on to this. And this involves your past. We've talked about the future <clears throat> a couple times already. I want to ask both of you guys if you could go back in time, as I like to say, that the only way of, of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the, into the impossible. That's the name of the podcast. I want to ask you guys both if you could talk to your 20-year-old self and give him advice. 
what would it be to give him the confidence to go into the impossible as you have done? So I'll start with Roger and then we'll go to Stuart. So Roger, advice to your 20 year old self, what would you tell him right now? Oh dear, that's a hopeless question. I mean, um, you see, I can't, couldn't tell him to do what I did because I didn't follow what I was doing, you see. I was doing pure mathematics and I got uh, tempted into talking about physics and things. So I had no rational line which I followed from when I was young. I, there are a lot of accidental things which happened to me one way or the other and they could easily have done a different thing. And I don't think there was any advice that I could have been given that would have helped me one way or another. I mean, it, it, maybe advice when it comes to emotional things. And <laughs> if we're talking about science here, I think then then, uh, right. then uh, I really have no answer. I could get <laughs> some suggestions in the other direction, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and lastly, Stuart, what would you tell your 20-year-old self if you could go back in time and violate all sorts of causality, etc.? Yeah, well, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, and uh, I would correct them uh, if I could. But as far as my career choice and and uh, uh, what I'm, you know, uh, medicine, studying consciousness, being fortunate enough to meet and work with Roger and developing this theory has been a tremendous experience for me. And I've got number one, I've gotten to see the world. I've been all over the world many times, and and uh, you meet the most interesting people, including you and and especially Roger, who has mm. been. Uh, you know, one, one of the great things in my life has been his colleague and friend. And so that part of my life, I wouldn't change. Many other things, I would, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, this has been phenomenal fun. Uh, Roger, happy early birthday. Stuart, uh, enjoy Canada uh, until you come back home. It's still sweltering down here in, uh, in the Southwest. Uh, everybody tune in on Monday. Uh, for uh, submit your questions to Nick Bostrom. You can find them on my community channel or on my Twitter account, Dr. Brian Keating. You can find Stuart. We'll put links to Stuart and Roger in the, uh, in the video description and all their amazing accomplishments. I wish you guys all the best. Stay tuned on Tuesday the 9th. We have an interview live with Sabina Hassenfelder. She'll be in the room. You can uh, snark out with me and she. So, guys, thank you guys so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Roger, good night and happy birthday, my friend. Thank, thank you, you for inspiring millions of people around me. Thank you. Happy Brian. birthday, Roger. Thank you, Brian. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that is a wrap on a one and a half hour long conversation divided over two episodes with yours truly, Dr. Brian Keating, the Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at UC San Diego. Many, many interviews with Sir Roger and other luminary Nobel laureates. Uh, we have a spinoff podcast called Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, which is the title of my uh, second book. And you can get that book, which has an interview with Sir Roger, where we get into basically things that we just touched upon here, career advice, collaboration, ideas about uh, about things outside of the world of physics. He's such an enormous mind and generous spirit, uh, but I like to humanize my, my subjects. And I do so by bringing them to you in a way that hopefully you can understand, interact with, as I believe we have a moral obligation as scientists to communicate to the public who pay our salaries. And all these people would do what we're doing for free um, uh, if we even if we uh, had to. So the fact that we get paid by you guys out there brings me such joy. And I only ask for two things. One is for you to subscribe to my mailing list, which is briankeating.com slash list. And there you might win a chance uh, or have a chance to win one of 100 meteorite samples that I'm giving away. You heard about that in this uh, end of this episode. 
Uh, and uh, who knows? There might be some life on it. Uh, hopefully not. That would be weird. But but anyway, um, you might win it, and uh, and that would be a treat. And the other thing is to go to my YouTube channel, uh, Dr. Brian Keating, subscribe there. Uh, and that will allow you to communicate with my guests. I have Nick Bostrom coming up soon, Bernardo Kastrup coming on, Lord Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royale, many, many phenomenal subject matter uh, experts, including a fan favorite, multi-time guest, Dr. Sean Carroll, for his new book coming in September. So I wish you to do those two favors and a third one to leave a rating. You can do that. Just look in your app right now and click five stars, leave a rating. You can do that everywhere you get your podcast. And if you do it on Apple, I'll even read your review. You'll have a written chance to leave a written review. And that written review um, could be something that really warms my heart. It could be advice. Uh, it could be uh, something you know, as simple as, I love this podcast, as Mark in Chicago said, always interesting guests and topics. Or it could be like Prof. Burr G said, Jay said, highly recommend Keating has great guests and interesting conversations. I hope uh, you find that as well and will continue to do so. So for now, I wish you an impossibly good week. Stay tuned. We have many interviews. Again, uh, Dr. Nick Bostrom is coming on and Dr. Sabina Hassenfelder, possibly tomorrow, if you're listening to this before Tuesday, the 9th, I should have said, the 9th of August, 2022. But if not, go back and listen. You'll hear some questions from the audience. Everybody, thank you so much. Have a great, impossibly great, impossibly magical rest of your week. Take care. Mm-hmm.